first passage we are reading is from Psalm 118. I'll be reading from the NIV if you want to follow along. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. <clears throat> and then I'll be reading from 19 to 29. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And then a few verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, 12 to 16. The next day, and Jesus is in Bethany at this time, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. For it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. God bless the reading of his word. Good morning, everybody. You know, last week... Uh, Somebody was preaching and they made a comment that they figure attendance goes up when I'm not here. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong, Scott. <laughs> you know what? It is good to gather with you as the body of Christ. And for those at home, uh, we miss seeing you in person, but we're so glad that you're able to join with us faithfully online. Uh, it's a blessing that we can do that in this season. And we'll be doing this long term. So the option of being online or in person is always there. But... It's good to connect in person, to talk together, to pray together, to laugh together, to cry together. Let's just bow in prayer. Holy Jesus, we come before you because you are our king, 
our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Messiah. And Lord, we come before you not as perfect people, but as broken, sinful people who are saved solely by your grace. And because of that grace, Lord, we can come to you in prayer. And we can bring our concerns, we can confess our sins, we can share our joys with you, and you hear them. Because Jesus, through your death and resurrection, we have grace, but we have a relationship with the triune God. And for that, we are thankful. For that, Lord, is why we're here, to worship you. Because you created us. You give us meaning and purpose. You love us. And we love you and want to serve you. This morning, Lord, we bring the concerns on our hearts and the joys. Concerns over health that people have. Cancer and COVID and all sorts of other illnesses and issues, Lord both within our church community, but within our families and the people around us at work and at school and in our neighborhoods. Lord, I'm reminded every time we encounter sickness, just uh, that prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, we need your healing, we need you to bring about the completion of your work and renew all things so there is no more sickness, there are no more tears. But Lord, we pray for healing for those who are sick. We pray for strength and patience for those who walk alongside those who are sick. For those who are grieving, Lord, we ask for your continued comfort and a sense of your presence in those moments of loneliness. We also pray for those who are grieving, Lord, that they're filled with joy at the memories of, that you've given them with the loved ones that they had in their life. Help us to have eyes to see those who are hurting and those who are lonely and to love them. Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for our world. There's so much brokenness, not just individually in our lives, but corporately as a community, as we see racism and division, as we see people hurting, we see mental health challenges and issues with drugs and overdoses. As we look globally, we see sickness as well. We see war and strife. We see refugees and so much. And yet, Lord, in the midst of that, you are present, working in the lives of people. We hear stories out of churches in Ukraine of just people's faithfulness to you, but also your faithfulness to them. And we praise you and thank you for being a God who cares, a God who engages with this world, a God who is not absent that you're a God who enters into the world to love and to sacrifice. We praise you for that. And Lord, we confess that we fall short of what you ask of us. We are distracted by the things in this world, by our own desires and our own interests. And just like we see in Scripture again and again, Israel doing and others doing, Lord, we, we turn away from you. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will draw us back to you. 
And we thank you that as we confess our sins, we're also assured that you give us forgiveness. That we have grace. And we can be healed from our hurts and our brokenness. We're no longer bound by those things, but are free to be in relationship with you. This morning, Lord, I pray for your word that we heard read to take root in our lives to affirm us in areas, but also to challenge and unsettle things in our life so we can draw closer to you and be the people you call us to be in this world for your glory. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So since the winter, we've been doing a sermon series on Acts, a couple series, and we're going to start another one up again after... uh, um, the 24th on May 1st, we're going to start a new series. Uh, next week, uh, we have Easter, and then the week after that, we got a missions weekend, which I'm really excited about. Um, so some fun stuff there. You don't want to miss that, either of those weeks. Uh, but for this week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we're doing a mini-series called Christ the King. And we're going to look at the theme of Christ the King in Scripture. Today, we're looking at the phrase, the King of Israel, which was said at Palm Sunday, Good Friday, we're going to look at how Jesus was mocked with the phrase, King of the Jews. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to take the phrase from Psalm 24, King of Glory, and look at how the resurrected Jesus is our King of Glory. And so I hope this is an affirmation to you, but also uh, when we talk about Jesus Christ as our King, and I know our ADC class is doing uh, King Jesus um, Gospel by Scott McKnight and looking at this, uh, it should unsettle us too. Because it means that if we have a king, we are subject to that king. We live for that king, to honor that king. And that's a place for us to grow and self-reflect. And I hope that happens as well as we do this series and we go through this. Now, we're at Palm Sunday. And as I grew older, um, I learned more and more about Palm Sunday and Easter. Initially, Palm Sunday was the best because it was the only time I could be in church and yell and shout and not get in trouble. So I could say, Hosanna! And and nobody would get mad at me. It was wonderful. In the other time, it was sit down and be quiet. I heard that a lot. Some would say I maybe didn't hear it enough. Um, So my excitement moved from shouting Hosanna to celebrating Jesus the King. I, I always thought it was wonderful that the people of Jerusalem uh, welcomed Jesus in as their king. Oh, that's so nice. Here he's coming, all these miracles, and they're finally recognizing him, and he's the king. And he's coming in, and they're putting down palm branches. Don't get the palm branches, but okay. And they're saying Hosanna, and he's coming in, and they're all excited. I loved how special they thought Jesus was. And what a gift God had given them in Jesus. It's kind of what I was taught Palm Sunday was. Everybody celebrating that Jesus the King had come. The King to save us from our sins. Does that sound familiar to anybody else, what they were taught growing up? And then my celebration of Palm Sunday had an added dynamic as I connected uh, the dots with Easter Sunday, Sunday and Good Friday, and I wondered, what in the world happened? 
Actually, I guess I should probably correct that. What in Jerusalem happened, to be more accurate? I mean, how, I know people can swing their views politically, in less, but in less than a week, they go from wanting to crown someone as king to wanting him crucified. Well, even in Canadian politics, that seems quite quick for a change in political views, don't you think? I mean, less than a week, they go from calling him king to shouting, crucify him. And so my celebration of Palm Sunday started being both a celebration of Christ the King, but always this lingering question in the background, what happened? How did this get off track so fast? Has anyone else ever stopped and wondered that? Or am I the only one? Okay, I got some people, no, you're not wondering that? So yeah, you are. Okay, thank you. So Jared and I are wondering that. The rest of you can listen in, okay? Why did the crowd cheer Jesus and shout Hosanna and celebrate him one day shouting, blessed is the king of Israel, and five days later we're calling for him to be crucified? Well, when I finally took the time to study it, I realized it wasn't that the people changed over those five days. Their desires and wants actually had remained remarkably consistent the same. It just turned out Jesus wasn't who they thought he was. He may have been the king of Israel that they needed. He most definitely was not the king that they wanted. And they wanted to make Jesus the king they wanted. Rather than let him be the king and become the people he wanted them to become. Now, we may say, well, we know what kind of king Jesus is. He saves us from our sins. He didn't come, over, come to overthrow the Roman government. We know that now. And in part, you're right. But I would suggest the challenge of looking for something we want instead of what God feels we need is still a challenge today for us. Whether it's a king as Jesus entered the tabernacle or something in our lives today, we still have the challenge of trying to make Jesus something we want rather than accepting he's what we need. And that's not just for people who haven't come to faith in Jesus. Maybe it's even more so a risk for those who have. We have this incredible ability in our culture um, now to find exactly what we want. If you're shopping and you need something, you can pretty much find exactly what you want in whatever color you want. And so, for instance, I, uh, I bake as a hobby. That's been my COVID hobby that I started doing. And I bake regularly, and we were getting worried that our KitchenAid mixer was dying, and it turns out it's going to be okay. But I started looking, and I found a model, and I was like, okay, well, which one would I buy? There's got to be different colors. There was 30 different colors of that mixer that I could choose from. I could literally buy whatever I want, however I want it. And like I said, the last two years have only made that more real with increased online shopping and everything. We can find the information or products we want. We are a consumer culture. We feel that what we want is what we should get. And in most cases, we do. That sense of entitlement and wants being fulfilled isn't just about what we buy anymore. It's also about knowledge and what we want to learn. We no longer look to learn from differing perspectives, but we look to confirm what we want to believe, what we think. We can find information that supports any viewpoint we want online. 
and we can pick and choose the information we want to look at and to say is true. So anybody can go online and really support any argument they want if they just spend enough time Googling and looking for things. And that view of information, of looking for what we want instead of learning from the breadth of information, has spilled over into our faith and our discipleship, I believe. Now, I value the breadth of resources we have for faith. I think it's great. We can hear countless preachers online, read endless books, listen to multiple podcasts, and watch a whole library of videos on Right Now Media. And that's just the start. There's no lack of resources for us as followers of Christ to learn and grow in our faith. Now think about that. Back in the day, the resource was the local church. You'd gather with a local group of believers. You'd hear a sermon. You'd sing together. And that was your faith experience. That's where you grew and nurtured faith. Now, people can go wherever. It's been interesting as I've heard you tell me your COVID stories about how some of you are watching four or five sermons on a Sunday. You have your favorite list of preachers that you want to take in and hear from. And it's amazing. And there's a lot of good that can come out of that as we engage with different people. And I believe we need breadth in our experience as a body of Christ. But we can sometimes focus on what we want and find the information that we want which agrees with us, or just the stuff that we want to wrestle with. And maybe we avoid other things that we should be wrestling with but don't want to. And when we do that, when we start picking what we look at, what we study, what we go into, without a deeper breadth beyond our desires, we run the risk of looking to Jesus, making Jesus be what we want, to be the king we want and not the king that God knows we need in our life. And we can feel like we're growing because we're finding all the things we want. We're learning new information and all that. Not realizing that perhaps there's gaping holes in our discipleship that we are intentionally or unintentionally ignoring. This is where we need to wrestle. We need to be asking, where are our blind spots in our discipleship? Especially in a culture where we can seek out all the information we want. We can feel very comfortable with how we're being discipled. And it puts us in the same spot as those Jews on the road waving palm branches, trying to make Jesus the king they want and not accepting him as the king they need. And so here we are, Palm Sunday, looking at the text we looked at in, in John 12. And we see Jesus here. I want us to look not just at the story to say what can we learn from it, but how are we similar? To understand why those in Jerusalem changed their view so quickly that week, we need to realize there's a history to Palm Sunday that people living at that time would have known, would have shaped their culture and their identity 
as the people, especially in Jerusalem. But it's something that perhaps we're not as aware of anymore. So if you'll humor me, I want to share a bit of history of the Greek Empire and the people in Jerusalem so we can see how the people in Jerusalem would have viewed Jesus entering Jerusalem. I think it'll also show us something in Palm Sunday that I think we can see in ourselves today. That we, want, that we can see what we want to see. And that can stop us from seeing what God is doing. So the history begins in the 4th century before Jesus was born. There was a military man named Seleucus, who was a general under the Greek emperor Alexander the Great. Many of us have heard of Alexander the Great. And after Alexander the Great died, the Greek Empire broke into four blocks, four power blocks. One of them contained Jerusalem, was called the Seleucid Empire, so named because it was ruled by Seleucus. So 200 years later, his descendants, Antiochus Epiphanes, attacked Jerusalem and the people of Israel forcing them to stop circumcision. He made them work on the Sabbath and stop sacrifices in the temple. He went even further, desecrating the temple by sacrificing a pig to Zeus right there in the temple. It was outrageous. And to help maintain a grip on Jerusalem at that time, and the Jewish people, Antiochus built a stone fortress in Jerusalem to hold supplies and soldiers. Now, to understand what this means, this is the equivalent of having a foreign military creating a fortress on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. This way, the people in Jerusalem could be controlled and oppressed. And they did not treat the people in Jerusalem well. They did not respect the God of Israel, and they polluted the temple and even killed people for no reason. It was horrible oppression. Not unlike we see in Scripture at other times. And so a number of years later, a Jewish man named Judas Maccabeus rose up and opposed Antiochus. He rallied the Jewish people and the Jewish forces and overthrew the Seleucid Empire hold over Jewish worship in the temple. Judas, Judas made sure the temple was cleansed. Worship and Jewish practices were reinstated. It is the events and miracles associated with those events that bring about a holiday. Anybody know which holiday it is? Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes out of this. Now, while the temple was retaken and the stranglehold from the Seleucid Empire was weakened, the stone fortress remained full of enemy forces and supplies. And the Seleucid Empire could not be considered defeated until this fortress was retaken and they were all driven out. And for that, the people of Jerusalem would have to wait another 20 years. And at that point in time, 20 years later, Jacob's younger brother, Simon Maccabeus, was in charge of the Jewish forces, and he finally attacked the fortress, and he captured it. And the Jews finally entered the fortress, praising God, waving palm branches as a sign of victory. They had crushed the enemy of Israel, and they made Simon their leader. In fact, reality is they made him their king and their high priest. They had overthrown the evil that oppressed them. They had their redeemer, their deliverer from the Seleucids. Some saw Simon even as a long-awaited prophesied Messiah who would bring a season of peace and prosperity, which is something that the people of Jerusalem enjoyed for quite a while 
following the victory and overthrowing the fortress. Now we jump forward to Jesus' time. And once again, Jerusalem is occupied by a foreign power. This time the Roman Empire was there, having taken over Jerusalem some 80 years after Simon freed it. The Romans now occupied the temple in all of Jerusalem. And the people wanted deliverance from Rome. They once again wanted their freedom like they had previously. They needed someone to deliver them. They needed a savior. They needed another Simon Maccabeus. They needed a Messiah. And after decades of oppression under Roman authority, there started being rumors of a new prophet. One who worked miracles. One who had radical teaching that hadn't really been heard before. One who people were whispering was the promised Messiah. The man's name was Jesus. And they were intrigued by the mix of miracles, the radical teaching, and opposition to these religious leaders of Israel who sought to keep peace with the Romans and didn't advocate a military response. There were others, though, who wanted an aggressive stance against Rome. No matter what, though, pretty much everyone wanted the Romans gone. And many of those who'd gathered in Jerusalem had also recently heard of Jesus' most amazing miracle, having raised Lazarus from the grave. And what was clear to everybody was this man is different. This man was special. This man was sent by God based on the things he did. And they knew this was the one who would be the Messiah who would free them from Rome. So the day we know is Palm Sunday now came and Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And people recognize it's him, it's Jesus, but they also recognize that he is riding on a donkey and something that is, that's something that's significant and was not lost on the people gathered around Jerusalem. They knew the prophet's teachings and would have known right away that this Jesus riding on a donkey is fulfilling a prophecy made by Zechariah that we read in Zechariah 9. We read, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They had wondered if Jesus was a Messiah that they needed, that they wanted. And this sign proved what they thought. This had to be him. He's coming in on a donkey. The Redeemer was here. His name is Jesus. He's riding into Jerusalem, and things are going to happen now. And they saw Jesus riding in as the king they wanted, the king they felt they needed. He was the new Simon Maccabeus, the one who would deliver everybody And today would be the day. He will bring victory and drive away all that stands in the way of Israel, thriving. The prophet had said the Messiah would deliver God's people, would end the war and bring peace and expand his rule. Now was the time. And this could only mean one thing. Freedom from the Romans was at hand. Victory was going to be achieved. After all, there was nothing in their minds. They needed more than that. 
The stories of the Maccabees overthrowing the Seleucid Empire would be relived anew in Jesus. And so people once again gathered palm branches and began waving them as a sign of victory. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They have just declared Jesus their king. The one who will lead them into victory. Now, this is not something to be taken lightly. They're declaring a different king publicly than Caesar in Roman-occupied territory. As you can imagine, that may not be the smartest strategy to maintain peace. Palm Sunday was as close to open revolt as you can get without actually being one. The crowd was worked up. They thought they knew what would happen. And then Jesus went into the temple, and the crowd was excited. Now Jesus would go in and clear out the temple. He cleared out the Romans, just as Judas Maccabeus did so long ago when he took over the temple. And all the evil and corruption would be gone, and they would be in control of themselves again, and they'd be powerful again. And so Jesus enters the temple, and he clears it. Just not the way they expected. We read in Luke 19, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus came to Jerusalem that day to save God's people from themselves, not from the Romans. He came to save them from their sin and brokenness, from the corruption of their faith and the corruption of their relationship with God. So Jesus shares that which was a house of prayer had been changed to a den of robbers. He didn't care about the Romans there. They were inconsequential to what he was trying to do. They were beneath him. Because something far greater was at work, God wanted to redeem his people and restore a relationship with them. He didn't care about the power of politics in the world at that time. He cared about people's lives and their souls and a relationship with them. But they wanted a political victory. God, something, God wanted something more. He wanted something greater. God wants to transform lives, and he still wants to transform lives today. He wants to transform our relationship with God. Jesus was not the king of Israel they wanted, but he was the one they needed. The king who could save God's people from themselves, who could save God's people once and for all. He was the king who could sacrifice everything for everyone. So the people waited over the week, and the political reality they dreamed of didn't come to pass. In fact, it went downhill fast, and Jesus was arrested. What a disappointment he turned out to be for them. Right? This did not turn out the way they planned. They wanted victory. Instead, he's being shamed. And the crowds that had put their hopes and dreams on this miracle working prophet who rode into Jerusalem turned their backs on Jesus because they didn't do what they wanted. And they added their voice to the Pharisees and religious leaders and they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! He's useless to us. 
crucify him. The people have been right. Jesus was the king. But they refused to look beyond themselves to what God was fully doing and embrace it. They were unwilling to examine themselves and what they wanted to see if it's what God wanted for them. They knew what they wanted, and they couldn't see the full impact of who Jesus was. Despite all his teachings, all his miracles, turning the powers upside down in the world, they didn't get it. I'm not sure we always get it. So perhaps we're in the same place. The king of Israel that came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey brought a peace far different than we expect. The king of Israel also asked for more of us than we're often willing to acknowledge. We see a king who came to die on a cross for our sins, and that's true, he did. He came to die on a cross for our sins. But that's not all that it means that Jesus is king. That's just getting started. If you think Jesus is no more than a get-out-of-hell card in the game of life we live, and is about getting into heaven when we die, and that's all he's about, then you're drastically mistaken, and you have completely misunderstood who Jesus was and what Jesus was about. Yes, that is a part of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So hear me. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus died so we'd be in eternity with him in heaven. Yes. But that's not all of it. The gift of eternal life and glory is one of the results of what Jesus does. But Jesus the King came to overthrow not political realities in our world, but spiritual and worldly ones the powers and principalities of the world, to overthrow them in this world and make a way for us to return to the intimate relationship with God that we were created to have, to restore the relationship where we live to serve the triune God, to recognize God as our king and not the world. So Jesus came for a relationship, not just some transaction where we say a prayer and we get a gold star into heaven. God wants relationship with us the way he created us to be. And yes, he wants that to be an eternal relationship. Do you hear me on that? I'm not saying it's not a part of it. But if all you see the gospel as being is a get out of hell card, and you're not understanding that this is about relationship and living for Jesus and not the world, then you're missing foundational parts of the good news of why Jesus came. If you think Palm Sunday is about Jesus coming to die on a cross with no implications on your life, no call to be different, if we do that, then we're making the same mistake the people holding palm branches made. 
We're seeing Jesus for what we want him to be, not who he fully is. If your discipleship journey is just about finding the things you want and not stopping to listen to what Scripture calls you to, not slowing down and listening to the Holy Spirit, if all you want to do is share what you know to be true based on what you find out and not listen to what God is saying through others, perhaps you're trying to make Jesus into the king you want, not the king God sent that you need. This isn't black and white. You know your heart. This is for you to wrestle with. I don't know what this looks like for you, or for you, or whoever. But we need to be wrestling with, are we looking at Jesus as the King God sent us that we need? The one that seeks to transform our life to renew us in our relationship with him? Or are we falling into that temptation and pulling away? Pulling away in such a way that we're starting to try and shape Jesus in what we want. As I look at people who've walked away from the church, often... It's more they've tried to make Jesus what they want and they found out that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is our king. We need to know that. The powers of the world are overthrown and no longer need to control us. No matter what evil our world holds, no matter what brokenness there is, what wars or illness or natural disasters or oppression or struggles we face, Jesus is our king and he is victorious. And because of that, we can have a relationship with Jesus. A relationship that moves beyond this world into eternity. And I echo the words of the Apostle Paul who says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall ever, ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is why King Jesus came. That is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, is Jesus is the king we need. The love of God was manifest in Jesus. The love of God was shown to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which allows us to have a restored relationship with the triune God. And sin is no longer the barrier it was. It brings us the gift of eternal life. But the question we're called to is not whether or not we have eternal life, but what are we doing with that eternal life that we've been given? Jesus, the King, saved us and has called us to follow him and to be his disciples. Are we willing to live in that grace? We're going to make mistakes, but we have grace. And are we going to follow our King, submit our life to our King, and let him transform us into the people he wants us to be. 
The message of Palm Sunday is that Jesus made us a way to have a relationship with God because God sent his son as the king over all. And God calls us to obey the one who is king over all things. To obey the one who created and loves us. And for that, we can shout the words, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is the king of Israel. And may he also be the king of your life. Let's pray. King Jesus, we confess we often live in this world seeking to control rather than yield to you. We want to dictate what we know and what we should do, and we forget at times to slow down and listen. Help us to live as if you are our king. Help us to recognize that you rule over our lives as our king and to look beyond ourselves to you, to learn from you, to live for you, to live in the relationship your death and resurrection made possible. For we can't do this by ourselves. We need you. Jesus, we need your grace to do this. And so, Jesus, thank you for restoring our relationship with God. And may your spirit empower us each day to live in humility and selflessness to serve you and to share your good news with the world around us through our words and our actions. We pray this, Jesus, in your holy name as a king who reigns on high. Amen.